unhappiest in the saddle. <laughs> a fellow sportsman. I am an FBI agent. Great Scott. What do you say we cut the chit-chat a-hole? Dogs and cats living together. Mass hysteria. Come with me if you want to live. Hello and welcome to Retro Ramble. I'm Charlie McGee. I'm George McGee. And this month we're going to be taking a look at the 1985 film Back to the Future. George, I don't think it would surprise anybody for me to say that this is a big film to us. It's uh, We go back and review films of the 80s and 90s, as you all know, but this is, uh, well... Well, it's, it's almost like our, our mission statement. It's, uh, well, for one, it's our cover artwork. Yes, we <laughs> have uh, really gone gone to it with that lovely, lovely poster. We've we've embellished it with our beautiful faces. So to the untrained eye, you know, people might think we're just a podcast about Back to the Future. But uh, so, yeah, it's uh, it's obviously, it means a lot to us. So, so good, we made it our cover artwork. Um, but we realized, obviously, we've been doing this for over a year now. We've got many episodes under our belt, and we felt comfortable enough to approach this film. And I can't think of many people who would say that this is a bad film or people don't like this film. This this is a very big event for us. So we, we, we are going to go into extreme detail. There's going to be, obviously, lots of spoilers, but there's so much to discuss. Yeah, it's a film that has a special place in both our hearts and in many other people's. As, as you say, it's it's a well-loved film. There a well-structured film? There's a well-structured film. Few people will have a bad word to say about it. And it just seemed like the right timing for us. It's it's obviously it's Easter, so it's a, an Easter special of sorts. And it ties in quite nicely with the release of Ready Player One, which is one, a Spielberg film, and it also, as the, the marketing has led us to believe, features, features the DeLorean highly. The Back to the Future DeLorean uh, very highly. We will start off with the usual trivia, but a production chat. We'll quickly cover our first memories of the film, all of the major highlights from the film, covering each act throughout. We'll talk about the soundtrack, we'll talk about what actually had to happen to make this film a reality. And we will talk about Coulda, Woulda, Shoulda. For those of you in the know, Coulda, Woulda, Shoulda is the other people that were considered for major roles in the film. But we normally leave this to the end, but this month we're doing it a bit differently. So yes, there will be uh, a major Coulda, Woulda, Shoulda at the start, which is vital to the film's development. Though I've also still got some other Coulda, Woulda, Shouldas uh, for, for later in the chat. Yeah, so we're going to be talking about Back to the Future the first film we will cover the sequels at a later date before you go any further here's just a quick word from george for some general housekeeping we're not film journalists we are two brothers doing this out of the the goodness of our hearts for our love of film um, but be warned uh, there will be spoilers from the very beginning there will be some mild swearing bad impressions and they're well, maybe, yeah, there will be some bad impressions on this. I mean, we, we even if there's just no one from the film, there'll be probably be some bad impression in there somewhere along the line. We're brothers. We laugh at each other's jokes. Get over it. We may ramble from time to time. But there'll be we, tangents. There'll be tangents, but we hope to uh, inform as well as entertain. 
without further ado, George, what are what are we recording on? Where are we recording? What describe the room to me? So I'm in I'm in a dusty garage. I'm surrounded by by knobs, amps, humming, electrical activity. The, the largest speaker known to man. The biggest speaker you will ever see. Um, Are you wearing mirrored aviators? Just just for this intro. Okay, and you're just gonna just gonna hopefully that you've got all the levels right. You're just gonna hit that guitar and just hope for the best. What could go wrong? Exactly, very much like this episode. Okay, <laughs> and with that, um, we're gonna dive right into it. So enjoy the show. Enjoy. doesn't know it yet, but he's about to become the world's first time traveler. This is nuts. Back to when his mother was a teenager looking for love. It's an absolute dream. Whoa, this is heavy. Back to when his father needed a little push. I'm your density. I was wondering I was even born. Meet Marty McFly, the first kid ever to get into trouble before he was even born. Steven Spielberg presents a Robert Zemeckis film, Back to the Future. Rated PG. Now at select theaters. Check newspapers. I think the best place to start with this is first memories. George, do you want to talk about your first memories of this film? Can you remember? So my memories of this film kind of sort of merge with, because I think when this came out, when this was released, I was all of two years old. Yes, that would sound about right. So I have better memories of when the sequel came out. My memories are, are probably more based around you. I remember you going to the cinema to see the the sequel uh which was 1989 i think oh the sequel yeah, yeah yeah um and i was so jealous that you went to see it and i was like why can't i go why can't i go and i think because i was of would have been all of you know six at the time i remember you having a back to the future skateboard it was a but it was a skateboard with Back to the Future on it. It had the logo on it, but it wasn't actually a skateboard that featured in in the movie. It wasn't the skateboard that Marty McFly had. It was a it pretty much had the poster on on the skateboard. Some people could argue that you know I thought I was Marty McFly with my uh, life preserver, sorry, body warmer. Yeah. Um, I had similar hair, i.e. big hair. Bouffant <laughs> hair. Um, but it didn't worry me because I knew deep down that I was Marty so, McFly. So yeah, for, for, for me, I was probably sort of a little bit too young for that initial wave. So yeah. But you couldn't hide from it. Uh, no, I couldn't. I, no, but that's it. It was so much ingrained in our culture. Like everyone skateboards. It massively was like for for us that, that cultural significance of of skateboards and stuff like that and yeah it's it's weird because i think both you and i have since like a, this is a a key influence on our popular culture not just you know science fiction films skateboarding entertainment pop music is the time travel that you and i are both massive fans of time travel stories that we read a lot of science fiction and this film is a a perfect example of that so Whilst I don't really remember the first time I saw it, it's had a big impression on on me to to this day. Has this film had a big impression on me? Well, I mean, I can't remember the... 
the uh, the exact details of, of the evening, but I do know that this is probably the second film. Obviously, you're taken to the films when you're sorry, the movies, the cinema when you are younger, but they're not always the films you you remember. Uh, I can remember going to see Superman three, and I think shortly after this, it was this film. This was the one film that I can remember beginning my obsession with not only time travel but the cinema, and I can. To give you some uh, ideas to how old I was, I was six years old and I can remember getting told off in class on the Monday after seeing this for um, basically explain, getting far too excited about explaining the major plot points to my friends and nobody cared about spoilers. We were six years old. We lived and breathed from the uh, reviews of our friends. Our friends were selling us. They were like, you've got to see this film because he jumps on the thing and there's an explosion or he bangs his, his head off the steering wheel to start the flux capacitor. My friends hadn't seen the film, but you know, I obviously got told off for getting too excited, but this was a classic of, of the time, a modern day classic. I didn't know what modern day classics was. I didn't know you know, that I was the target audience that this was meant to. I didn't know that people of Michael J. Fox's age weren't actually teenagers. There were many things I didn't but realize. Michael J. Fox still looks like a teenager. He's forever young. <laughs> um, we love you, Michael. Um, so, yes, I even tried to enjoy the terrible, terrible game that came along with the second that, film. That's, I have memories of playing. It was so frustrating, but we will cover that on the Back to the Future 2 the, episode that we will get to. Or Amiga game podcast special. Yeah. Yeah, I just remember it being very hard and having very little to do with it. couldn't get past the first level. Having very like, little We to do could with not get past the first level. It was like you, you got to, we're spoiling the second film, but you get to the future in the second film. And then I couldn't, we couldn't, we were too young. It just did not work. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure there'll be lots of shared memories of that very difficult Amiga game. How was this received in terms of ratings? You look on any reputable site out there. This is an 8.5, 9 out of 10 film. This is a 4 out of 5 star. Some people might go nuts and say it's 5 out of 5 in today's world in terms of the films that are coming out at the moment. It would definitely be mm. 5 out of 5. But I think arguments aside, it's difficult to find somebody who dislikes this film. It's up there with Indiana Jones, Goonies, Empire Strikes Back, God, well, mm. maybe not Godfather. That's, uh, I wouldn't put that in the adder, the family family no, adventure no, film no, genre. Uh, um, yeah, it's, I think it's it's worth pointing out at the start that yeah, it's it's very hard to be critical about this film. I mean, we're going to try and we're going to poke fun in a few gonna, areas. And we're gonna, but this and we're, is out yeah, of love. Nothing. We're, we're going to have some fun with it, I, I, much like we did with, as you said, this this film is very close to our hearts, much like Goonies. Terminator 2. Terminator 2, Batman. Predator. Predator. These are, these are films that we have watched probably approximately about between 50 and 80 times. Mm. Um, those are probably actual figures. And so in some cases... A, it's, more, a little, it's a little bit depressing. Um, what did you do <laughs> with yourself? I still live with my mom. It's okay, man. We lived in the Northeast. It was cold and wet. Mm. At this sort of time, uh, it's very similar to a film of the same era, which we've covered, uh, Ghostbusters in that it's got a very careful balance of uh, comedy, great set pieces, with some very heightened moments of tension. Strong performances. Strong uh, supporting cast, mm. soundtrack, but all enhanced through an eeriness of time travel. And we are going to move on from First Memories and talk about our production chat, but 
this was my first exposure to time travel. I was six years old and I'd seen everything. I'd seen spaceships, I'd seen, you know, things. I'd watched Lord of the Rings, uh, there's lightsabers, Superman. I'd never had to deal with the existential crisis that came to Marty McFly in a time travel. But if, if you think about it, I'm talking quite, quite loosely here, but I think the, the eighties is when sort of maybe because it oh, down to special effects, but time travel became quite a popular genre. If, it, if you can call it a genre, if you think that before that, if the, you look at the sort of the sixties and seventies, you have the classic go film. to the moon <laughs> yeah, well you know i think the only the only is like the the film they did of the um, hg wells the time machine that is classic film even though not many people see it as a good film but it wasn't really until you look at the 80s you had back to the future you had uh something that you and i am assuming we watched loads as kids but haven't seen recently the philadelphia experiment oh my god yeah um you had it flight of the navigator that has elements of time travel he-man has elements of time travel oh, christ yeah we're gonna uh, do that film one day ladies and gentlemen masters, masters of, of the, the universe, universe. Yeah. oh yes we are which so, features strickland a character from a, this film playing a very different role so yeah it, i i don't know if it was a a popular topic of the time and the the fact that special effects were were moving on a bit, but yeah, it seems to be very much a zeitgeisty type topic, but rarely bettered, you know, in terms of if we do single you know films into a time travel genre, this is you know a a perfect specimen of sorts. It's also the cream of the crop because yes, this is the middle of the eighties. If you look at the films of that era, this, as I mentioned before, this is a top five film. So there's a lot of films we talk about from the 80s. I think we'd all agree that there's the there's the early 80s with the hangover from the 70s in terms of costume design and haircuts. There's the mid 80s looking forward. And then there's the late 80s, which is kind of the same genre as a lot mm. of early 90s it's, stuff. It's funny. It's, it's a peak 80s film, but it's a film that doesn't spend much time in the 80s. Luckily. Luckily. Can you imagine a world like that? We're talking about the pop culture just because it is very present. This is a film about time travel, about, and as somebody also pointed out, it's quite scary for us to think that this film came out 30 years ago. This well, no, film no, no. Is, has gone back. We have to go back in foreign time no, as no, Marty McFly. No, the, the scary thing is we have to go further. Yes, yes, it is do. more than 30 years since 1985. We are 33 years, so we are yeah. further ahead than Marty was from 1955, which is frankly depressing. So, what were you listening to at the time? Well, obviously, Huey Lewis on repeat. <laughs> obviously. <laughs> so... I'm going to jump in with a frightening statistic. The script was rejected 40 times before it was greenlit. 4-0. Four However, can I just jump in here? Because you and I were talking about this in one of our podcast briefings about isn't this arguably one of the best scripts known yes. to man? So, uh, so those 40 revisions are kind of worth a, it. a film school, I think it's a Californian film school, teach this script as a near-perfect script in terms of the structure, in terms of the characters, the characters' journeys, how you use language throughout uh, and actual dialogue throughout a film. So it is, it's, it's quite interesting. But saying that, at the same time, the film went, the script and the film went through uh, lots of changes. So 
the film is is brought to to us um, by um, the director uh, Robert Zemeckis. What's or, he ever done for us? What's or, he done for us lately, George? Or, or Bob Zemeckis? So Bob Zemeckis is Bobby. A, Bob, a good friend of mine, is a. I would say he's, he's very influential on the the whole state of film. He, like James Cameron, he is something, someone that has is always looking to push the filmmaking process. So, Robert Zemeckis, whilst is uh, you know uh, very famous for Back to the Future, he's responsible for doing um, motion capture. So. He did uh, the Polar Express. Um, he did Beowulf. In terms of that, uh, a lot of the stuff that Andy Serkis is as as taken with. Some might argue he lost. We we kind of lost Robert Zemeckis when he fell down that rabbit hole of motion capture because he was one of the early adopters. He was pre Andy Serkis because as we talked yeah. about uh, recently, that underneath. Everybody, is, every good actor is, is, is Andy Serkis in in a motion capture suit. So yeah, he he was a fir- one of the first major directors to to play around with that that technology. That and obviously Back to the Future was you know a, a leading film in terms of pushing special effects. He's but he's also churned out uh, you know he's still churning out some quite big films. He's still a pr- prolific director. So. Recently, he's done um, flight. Is he one did, I he did flight with Denzel Washington, which, which is very unzemeckis. You look back at his portfolio; not a great uh, film to show. Say, if your wife has a phobia of flying, like mine does. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Honey, come on! What are you talking about? It involves, Denzel, Denzel Washington is quite hot. Yeah, it's, it's a really gripping drama that has. It deals with it deals with alcoholism. Are you sure it's got nothing about planes in it? No, darling. It's called flight. Yeah, but it's, it's more about his internal struggle. So yeah, he did flight. He did um, recently the. Oh, I haven't seen it. The uh, dramatic uh, retelling of uh, the walk, uh, a man on wire, the guy that Philip Petit who walked between the World Trade Center towers, and apparently that was an amazing experience in three D. Apparently it was a bit like too much for some people watching it in the cinema because vertigo yeah vertigo and and all that jazz he also did uh allied with uh, brad pitt and marianne cotillard i promise i didn't sleep with her angelina, <laughs> angelina i did not sleep with her so yeah he's he's still churning out a lot of films he's still i say um he's been dabbling in the, in the motion capture stuff he's always tinkering away it, this film is brought to uh the screen by by Robert Zemeckis and his uh, writing partner and producer, Bob Gale. Who, after 40 times, got it right. <laughs> got, got, got it right. So they were working on it for the the idea for quite a while, even in the early 80s. So they, they did a film together, I think in, in the late 70s, early 80s, called Use Cars. That was a moderate success. And they were working on this idea that like, it was a bit like George Lucas with Star Wars. It was that sort of... It was an on and off project. Yeah, that, kept that, going back to it, but also that that uh, Saturday morning sort of serials, cartoons, that wholesome fun adventure. They wanted to do something with time travel, but they weren't in, entirely sure what was the hook. It's funny that you use those terminology because when I think of wholesome fun adventure, I think of Steven Spielberg and Robert Zemeckis. You know, it's they they kind of did get that down to a T perfectly well that's it and so they were trying to, they started writing and pitching it around as early as 1981 so you know four years before production and Bob Gale was back at home and he discovered his father's yearbook 
and you're looking at pictures of his dad when his dad was in his teens and he discovered that his dad was the high school president and he just and it just started this train of thought thinking would I have been if me and my dad were in high school at the same time would we have been friends what would it been like you know he was so surprised he never knew his dad was the high school president and it just started off that chain of thoughts of like I never you know things you never knew about your parents when they were your age when your parents were you know inverted commas cool and it just started that train of thought like you know if you had the chance to go back what would it be like would you get on and I'd totally go back and go after my mum. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that may, maybe that came a little bit later. So they they actually they came up with a concept, and you know you you say that you know sort of going after your mum the the whole uh, or your mum going after you. But this sorry. sorry this does kind of make sense because we're we're both uh, we're both fathers. But I I see the way that my wife looks at my son, and I know you know <laughs> I, know, I know that if she was time traveling, she'd be like. He's a better model. He's like my husband, but with me thrown in. <laughs> so they, um, I'm just going to quickly move on from that. Uh, I've, there's I'll, something Freudian. I'll be honest, I'm a little bit confused. There's a Freudian alarm going off yeah. on the desk. So they, they pitched it to, to various studios, so that, that concept. And they actually turned the, the film down for being too sweet and not risque enough because this was around the same time as Fast, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, Porky's, Revenge of the Nerds, and those kind of sort of comedy. Edgy. Edgy comedies. Yeah, they needed to, well, frankly, they needed more tits and ass. Yeah. Yeah, they were told it's, it's too sweet. Okay, so we'll go and pitch it to Disney. Disney are like, what the hell is this? <laughs> Fool's kissing his mama. You know, <laughs> yeah. sort of, this is far too wrong. Yeah. It's all about incest. No, no, no. Disney will not be associated with this. So what, what's in between the two, George? So, so yeah, they, 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 they felt... <laughs> has no moral compass, but wants to make money. So, Fox. <laughs> so, so, yeah, they, they fell between two stools. Um, so the one person that had always backed them was Steven Spielberg. He had been a, a friend of both uh, Bob Zemeckis and Bob Gale throughout their early films and whilst he was sold into it they didn't want to pressure him into supporting it because they were scared that you know he'd bankrolled their their previous films i think he'd executively produced their previous films and they weren't massive hits so they decide to shelve it so because they'd had no luck with the script uh, Robert Zemeckis goes off and makes a film, writes and makes a film called Romancing the Stone. But that's a great film. Which Michael. is which is a surprise success. Um, you could argue it's a bit of a rip-off of, of Indiana, Indiana Jones. Jones. Yeah. Um, but it's a massive success and it turns Zemeckis into hot property. Mm. He's so hot right now. Y- yeah. So he can make whatever he wants. Basically, mm. he carte blanche. Mm. And so he's like, well, I've got this Back to the Future script and being, you know, a mate, he goes and takes it to Spielberg, Amblin, you know, mm-hmm. who made E.T., um, made um, Goonies, so Kathleen Kennedy, who's currently producing, you know, overseeing the Star Wars franchise. A safe uh, pair of hands. safe pair of hands takes it to Universal. So, it's greenlit, but the, the story, so you've got the story of Kid going back, meeting his parents, and, you know, the complications in that. Hilarity will ensue. The actual time machine goes through various 
uh, variations, I should say. So the, the time, the concept of the time machine. We've changes. always joked about this. So what was the first time machine idea? So the first draft, the time machine was a laser device housed in a room. They boring. Sorry, that was terrible. Scrap yeah. that. Sounds like the fly. Do something uh, different. So after the uh, second draft, um, the device was attached to a refrigerator and then taken to an atomic bomb test. What? Sorry, back up. Sorry, it's well, it's the, it the, sounds like Indiana Jones four. Sorry, a refrigerator and a nuclear bomb test. Well, there you go. You um, have yeah, just summed it up. So that was the initial idea. Was yeah. So he climbs into the fridge, and then the fridge will survive a nuclear blast, and then no, no. So what? So to travel through time, all they have to reason. do, all they have to do to travel back in time for some reason is to set off a nuclear bomb and 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 hide in a fridge. Right, so I, I, I can't see why this didn't go anywhere, but I guess you're going to tell me. Um, so both Zemeckis and Spielberg agreed they didn't want children to start climbing into refrigerators and getting trapped inside. That might be dangerous. What it, they really want children doing is... Is getting into a car and driving as fast as possible. <laughs> or hanging onto the back of a pickup on a skateboard when you're only 15 well, years exactly. old. And it's also a time-traveling fridge or fridge in a nuclear blast is a terrible idea. Oh no, what, what's that you said? Yeah, Indiana Jones? There, w there wasn't a fourth Indiana Jones film. No, there it? wasn't. It's like them saying that The Matrix was a trilogy. I, I only Stand remember one film. I only remember one film. <laughs> Moving on. Third draft, they come up with the idea of it being a car. And it is a DeLorean because they pick a DeLorean because it looks so futuristic. It's made out of aluminium. It's got... Um, it's got the doors, a gullwing do door. Gullwing doors, Gullwing yeah. doors. However, they still keep the concept of it being started by a nuclear bomb. No, 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 no. This sucker's electrical. But I need a nuclear reaction to generate the 1.21 gigawatts of electricity I need. But the one reason... So that, that was in one of the final scripts, but then they decided that doing the whole bomb test thing was going to be too expensive, uh, reduce the budget, so they changed it to lightning. That's the story in place. Casting. So Michael J. Fox is their first choice for casting. However, he's not available. Why isn't Michael J. Fox available? He was in a very successful TV sitcom called Family Ties. I've never seen it. I'm sure you've never seen I it. I try to watch five minutes of it after falling in love with Michael J. Fox a little bit after this um, film. Apparently, he's a bit of like a mini re teenage Republican or something. He's like a really smart... I think his dad's the governor and he's the, like... He's like, ahead of his time. Yeah, he's like high school president times a thousand. Anyway, George, all this talk of cast makes me think, I've got Celine Dion in a box here. You know, ready to scream. Coulda, woulda, shoulda. Up. Should I release Celine? Are you ready to come out? Release Celine. She normally doesn't come out till the end of the show, but she's ready to go. A bit earlier than usual. A bit a much earlier than usual. So, yeah, Michael J. Fox, first choice, isn't available. Get rid of him. Zemeckis and Gale then cast Eric Stoltz as Marty McFly. And the reason we're bringing this up is because, unlike our other coulda, woulda, shouldas, he just wasn't coulda woulda or shoulda he, he kind of did it he woulda woulda did it woulda did it five weeks on set he was recording six weeks yeah f five six weeks of filming and eric stoltz was quite big at the time he was in uh, quite a few teen comedy uh, he put in a good performance uh, in the film mask i think he was in some kind of wonderful so he was kind of hot property but ultimately 
he wasn't uh, right for the part. They just said he was too serious, he was too wooden, he just wasn't getting that comic sensibility. You need to go and make some drug-fueled films in in, <laughs> in 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 the darker parts of Paris. No, but it's clear that a very interesting thing, two careers could have gone two very different ways. Exactly, exactly. I mean, yeah, Michael J. Fox could have just be, been stuck in, you know, uh, that TV drama thing. Obviously, I don't think Eric Stoltz ever got over this, if I'm completely honest. I mean, you know, he did some big films. Have you seen Anaconda? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I'm just saying, imagine if he'd been in this vehicle, because obviously... Literally. <laughs> literally in a DeLorean. But no, but for whatever reasons, Michael J. Fox's career has been limited. But... Well, it made him a star, but it also pigeonholed him at the same time. Yeah, but also I just think he's making so... It's kind of like the Mark Hamill thing. Why did Mark Hamill not make any more films? Do you know how much money he's making mm. of Star Wars? I think there's, uh, yeah, I mean, there's he, a little bit of that going well, on. I suppose Teen Wolf was, was prior to this, but uh, he did Secret of My Success. One of my favourite films. Uh, for so, so many bad reasons. So much 80s yuppie references. I just wanted to be an 80s yuppie and I just had to wait 20 years for it to happen. So uh, they sack... <laughs> Eric Stoltz after five, six weeks of filming um, and at a cost of $3 million. Being a bit serious and even even uh, Steven Spielberg was like, yeah, he's not right. He trusted in Zemeckis. They looked at the dailies and was like, yeah, it's just not working. Um, so they get Michael J. Fox, but he's still working on Family Ties. So basically, Fox is working Monday to Friday during the day on Family Ties going straight to the studio and filming night scenes for Back to the Future and getting about four hours sleep. And then he's working weekends to, to make up for the day shots. Makes me think those shots of him asleep on his bed with his arms behind his back, looking completely comatose, were probably taken on set. <laughs> probably, yeah, re real footage. So, yeah, that's it. It's quite a complex, uh, well, quite a troubled journey to get to the screen, but... It shows that, you know, how much faith that Spielberg had in Zemeckis and, and Gale. And in just in, in terms of, you know, they, they could all see that raw talent in Michael J. Fox, that he was a perfect fit for the role. And it was worth, you know, sacrificing a month and a half's filming, which in a film schedule is quite a big chunk. But also, I can see it's it's an amazing bit of casting, I think, because to look at what Eric Stoltz was obviously doing, because as we, you know, uh, all joking aside, Eric Stoltz is a great actor, and you, I can we I think everybody Anaconda aside, Anaconda put to bed. Um, he has great presence. Um, I enjoy watching films with him, but you can also kind of see that he was maybe a little bit too serious. And one of the things I think we all love about Michael J. Fox is. His boy next door comedy timing, great physical like comedy in terms yeah. of he's bumbling, he's tripping over, and yeah, he he, he just embodies the. It just does seem like a perfect role for him. And also to obviously 2015, the date that's on the flux capacitor in the later films did came up, and they did manage to get Christopher Lloyd. Michael J. Fox, and what's his mum's name? Is it Jane? Oh, uh, Lee Some, Thompson. Is it Lee? Lee? Leia? Lee, Lee. T Tomato, yeah. tomorrow. They got them all in the same room, and they were asking, and you can see that there's still the chemistry there between Christopher Lloyd and Michael J. Fox, and I do think that that had something to play. They were like, well, look, I'm sorry, but Crazy Scientist, it's the 80s, 
nobody's got this gig going the way that Christopher Lloyd has. Nobody is taking that away. He's got the part. Just, and just you wait till my coulda, woulda, shoulda's later. <laughs> so obviously, as George is indicating, lots of other people were considered. But um, there's something got to be said about the chemistry between the two. And I think maybe... There was, there's, you can see it. It's still there today. Yeah, no, I think I think that's what we've we've already touched on the fact that this film is amazingly cast. The every single part, everyone is you know nobody. Even puts, Biff is stooges went on to have very six well slightly successful careers. Billy Zane and the other guys, but no, they're all very. It comes up a lot here on Retro Ramble. Just as a little caveat, you might hear us waxing lyrical about. The foundation is some amazing supporting actors. And you see that in the parents, in Biff, yeah. in even the school teacher. You know, all these people who did not realize that they had a franchise waiting to happen. They did not realize that they were going to be doing very similar tropes in two more films. But their characters were so well designed that I actually feel that that was made possible by, by the way that they were designed. And it's, and it's a strength, obviously, they play on in the sequels. We're not going to dwell on it, but... There is a lot of repetition of, of dialogue, of scenes, of character arcs, but it's because all the characters are really strong in it. And, and it works. And, so, and there's a lot of fun. It works and it does support the mm. plot. You know, you know, George has got probably a few more things to talk about. No, no, I, I'm, no, I'm done. He, George is done with production <laughs> I'm, chat. I'm, ta- I'm, I'm taking off my mind, Ken. People, I'll see you later. <laughs> people are already starting to notice. It's that- up to you. <laughs> So yeah, I think I think that's it. The you know we've covered that the the script. It was a difficult script to get greenlit. The the time machine went through lots of variations. The actor was was changed. So yeah, had a little bit of a trouble to making of. But once all those bits were in motion, it was smooth sailing. We're diving into the film now, and the thing is about George and I like to try and keep ourselves grounded because we've been known to ramble. We try and like to break it down into acts one, two, and three. But when you look at the structure of this film, they are the you don't get it the first time round. If any of you can remember watching this first time round, that the parents and Biff. There's a number of people who are introduced very quickly in the first act because they're going to feature so heavily throughout. But you don't see them the first time round. You don't see how these characters are drawn. The fact that, uh, I mean, Biff, who will go on to become the Donald Trump douche. Uh, well, we of, we of haven't later got films. enough time to talk about we that. We haven't got tra- time to talk about Biff. He's a loosely drawn bully who's used to great effect in all of these films. Mm. And he's exactly the type of person that you'd expect to find in that role as the bully. But the parents, what I mean is that very quickly, it's washed over very quickly in the first act. You're too busy looking at the aviator shades and the skateboarding and the amazing pounding Huey Lewis soundtrack. It, you sk- when in doubt, play Huey Lewis. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's like you, you, it's not until the second watch that you see, oh yeah, these act, these characters, sorry, not to focus too much on the, um, the actors themselves who we all know are good, but these are very well drawn characters because they all go through their own little arc through the time but that's it, travel story. They're effectively playing, well, everyone else apart from, uh, Marty is playing three different characters you've got in three different timelines yeah you, you've got the starting 1985 you've got 1955 and then you've got the alternate the, 1985 the, yeah the old the, the new 1985 so every, if anything everyone else has got more work to do than michael j fox he's the same person throughout but 
you know, that's it. Credit to the performances, credit to the makeup. I mean, I was, that was one thing that I think I, I really struggled. Like, I think when I was younger, I even thought that it was different people playing them in, in the 1985. It was, they, they'd actually got different people that looked similar. But that's my point is that I didn't get that the parents were older. It's yeah. not until you're set, it's at least your second watch because, I mean, obviously I was very young at the time, but for me, the first watch, I'm like, you don't, you're not paying attention mm. to his parents no. at the beginning. You, you don't, you're not paying attention to the relationship dynamic between Biff, how he like comes into the house and kind of makes everybody feel uncomfortable and steals sweets and, and makes beer. <laughs> and beer. And he's just like, Oh my God, who has friends who does that? Yeah. You know, I mean, that's, it's actually quite terrifying in a way to think that somebody could walk into your house and boss your dad around like that but yeah you see that but you're, you're not focusing on that it's not until later I'm, I'm sorry but i think a lot of people would agree but you don't see it on the first watch it's only on the second watch you're like oh mm. yeah you know mm. and they and then when you go back to 1955 you see them without the makeup and then that's that's the point when you realize oh my god they were actually yeah. made to the the job of making them look old was done really well yeah, it's, it, you and I were talking about it earlier. The fact that maybe it's because you're you're in, you've been invested with the characters for longer. But I was watching the um, the last Harry Potter film, you know, Deathly Hallows Part Seventeen or whatever it, whatever they. It's not about it. making money, George. It's uh, about telling a story. Um, but the epilogue of that is when you've got Harry, Hermione, and Ron in their forties, and still I remember being in the cinema and both me and my wife laughing at the makeup and watching it years later is like yeah they've really like it's 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 almost like they've done a back to the future thing it's like they're wearing clothes from the 80s to make them look old (laughs) (laughs) Um, but um this gets it right in terms of i don't know if it's it's the it's the body movements as well like the fact that george mcfly's got this like the really oiled hair and stuff like that but it just does it really well. I'm, I'm, I'm conscious we're spending too much time in, in Act One, but they just sum it up really well. It's, uh, as you say, economic exposition. They, they sum it up perfectly. Well, yeah, everything has to be done very quickly. And it is a very short Act One with a very big, long Act Two and a very short Act Three. Obviously, some films are structured that way, but we've got Strickland, we've got the girlfriend, we've got the parents, we've got Biff. Uh, we've met Doc the first time round, and we're ready to jump back in time. So, so let's jump back in time. But before we do that, George, there's, we have to talk about the introduction of the time machine. We've also, I mean, we've we've missed out a few other key things. So, the thing that you know you you've talked about this in previous episodes is that music memory, that that audio memory. From that opening scene where he's he's in Doc's place turning on all the knobs. And we don't see him for a while. We don't see him for a while. There's so many sort of iconic sounds of like the the car booting up, the the flux capacitor. And that's what we get when, you know, the car is is first revealed. It's it's a great reveal because I think it's something like at least twenty minutes into the film. It's the first time we meet Doc. It's the first time we've seen the car. It's also the first time the amazing soundtrack by Alan Silvestri kicks in. We know we'll, we'll play a sample of this, the soundtrack right is, now. So I'll press press play. Is it that one? No, no, no. That's that's Predator. Okay, what about this? One? Oh no, that's Predator again. Huh? That's, that's still Predator. Okay, what about this one? <gasps> that's the right one. That's the right one. What's so, the difference? <laughs> but I yeah. like to think that Silvestri is that how you say his name? Yeah. I like to think that he was like hedging his bets. 
that he's like saying to the Predator guys, I've got this really good soundtrack and all I need is a green light and it can be exclusive, it can be yours. <laughs> and then he was running over to Spielberg and Zemeckis and go, I've got this really good soundtrack and if you secure it, it could be yours, totally exclusive. And he just went with both of them. Yep, you know, sort of like, Back up. Okay, they've gone for track A. I'll ke- I'll keep track B for later. What should I put in? Less tense drum music. No, it's a great first reveal. You've got that whole thing, and again, it's economic exposition. You've got Doc saying, "No, no, no! I'll answer all questions on the camera on this lovely, brand shiny new JVC See, video camera what available." Happened, <laughs> whatever happened to JVC, George? Were they were they available in JC Penny? You think? <laughs> Well, I don't know. Next I'm, to the Nike store, I'm drinking just, a Coke. I'm just going to put down my Pepsi free. Oh, was it? it there was the. No, it was all Pepsi in all of the films, it's, wasn't it? Yeah, it's all Pepsi. Can I get? Uh, uh, yeah, can I get Pepsi free? Yeah, you got to pay for it, bud. It's a great example of okay. How does time travel work? Well, I'm going to send my dog back. Can I just jump back into pre-production? Apparently, in some of the earlier scripts, uh, this this harkens back to some of our previous episodes, that the dog, Einstein, was <laughs> supposed to be originally a chimp or a monkey. So, Oh, no, we're not doing the monkey in the suit. Special so, effect thing. You you guys need a monkey. I've got a monkey. You can put him in a DeLorean. He can go back in time. Isn't that right, Mojo? Can you put him in a dog suit? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what are you saying? So it was actually a monkey or was it meant to be a monkey dressed as a dog? No, no, it was just going to be an outright monkey. So what was that, the story behind Doc having a monkey? Well, they they test hey. shit on monkeys all the time. Well, I don't think it was that. I think it was 9.95, Michael Jackson's big. Michael Jackson's got bubbles. But bubbles a monkey. Yeah. Um, maybe you know, it was that. Michael Jackson's I, got a monkey. Why can't I have a monkey? Maybe it's something from Steven Spielberg. He's like, guys... Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just... What's they, the link here? They so pushed this monkey on me from Gremlins. I've... I've Put a deposit down. Stevie, you're I- still getting those calls from the uh, uh, the, mon- the monkey stunt company that you want to put monkeys in all the suits? Yeah, I'm still getting them. Yeah, you want to talk to them? So, guys, we've, we've got this monkey. He's at the Universal lot. He's in a cage. We need to use him. He's got a contract. We need to use him in some film. What? What do you mean you've rewritten it? There's a dog. Anyway, Einstein performs... I'm- perfectly well he wants to show that it works how the time travel machine works it runs on plutonium he also does a very scientific test because if you're gonna this this is something i'd like to pick up on there's a few things in doc emmett brown's character that i love and one is the fact that it's a truly scientific test that if you can travel through time it's like if you can fly you don't jump off a building you see if you can take off from the ground first to quote the great Bill Hicks. And it's the same with time travel. You don't go back 30 years and try... You go back two minutes. It's a very... One one minute? Oh, sorry, it's one minute. You go back one minute and the car's frazzled with frost. It's great. Uh, Yeah, that's uh, uh, something apparently in trivia there. Why is it cold? No, no, but it's something... No, it's... it's, It creates a black hole. It's a great visual thing, but something that isn't in either of the sequels. And any time the car goes back in time, the the whole icing over, they just get rid of. Yeah. Probably, no, no, no. We, we, we worked that out. <laughs> I liked it. I liked the whole um, frosting over. The thing that I picked up on watching it again recently is like, okay, yeah, it's amazing. He's invented time travel. Surely in the mid-80s, having a remote control, fully functioning car is, a, is an invention in itself. That's definitely going to pay the, all those plutonium bills. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of plutonium, can we talk about 
the Libyans. I think we can, mainly because one of the actors in this film shouts, The Libyans! <gasps> oh my god, they found me. How many times do we quote that bit? I don't know how, but they found me. Run for money! So yeah, we, we, we do that quote. Oh my god, they found me. <laughs> Yeah, but just just to reiterate, George and I have watched this film so much, and I'm sure many, many times many of you are like this with other films. But we've watched this film so much that we don't repeat the lines of Doc saying it in 1985. The bit that we like is when Marty's got it on the camera in 1955. He's constantly rewinding it. It's like, oh my god. So there's the you know um, we've talked about this being a a near perfect film an untouchable film and apparently um, the rights are still held by uh, Bob Semeckis and Bob Gale under lock and key and I hope. And, and they have said it's never going to be remade in their lifetime so I think we're safe for now but assassins are currently being positioned outside but, Robert Semeckis' house yeah, by Disney Fast Fast and Furious aren't going to you know it's not going to run for so long Universal need another franchise if they were to remake Back to the Future today don't really see them weaving in a whole what, Libyan mid terrorist Middle Eastern terrorist nuclear bomb. <laughs> Funny thing story. is, Marty, uh, I said I was going to build them a bomb, so I stole their plutonium. I was still prepared to build them a bomb. I still built them a bomb. They wanted me to build them a bomb, so I took their plutonium and in turn gave them a shiny bomb casing full of used pinball machine parts. So I only maimed a few of their contributors. But the thing is, yeah, the, the, those terrorists are comic relief. They're driving around. That's in, hilarious. In They're a in a VW, VW camper van with an RPG, as you do. A rocket launcher and stuff like that. And it's just like, okay, okay. You, you yeah, raised yeah. a valid question to me when we were going through an important time in our lives when you said to me, Charlie, what happens to those Libyans? I don't think they're dead. Are, I they, think... are they badly burned? Did they fire the ro the RPG? <laughs> what? I don't... No, see, they don't fire the RPG. I smell a spin-off. <laughs> I smell a spin-off. <laughs> Back Go to the Libyans. Back to the Libyans who didn't actually fire the RPG, just crashed into a Kodak thing. They're now okay. They've come out of it. And just as Marty and Doc are about to have that meaningful embrace... Expanded universe. It can be all like a Homeland special of... These, like, Libyan terrorists working undercover to get revenge at Doc Brown. So anyway... We're uh, in 1955! We've uh, well, only gone back in time! We've only gone back in ruddy time. Um, like a lot of films of the era that we've touched on, like, like Goonies uh, and the like, there's a lot of swearing for a family film. And one of my favourite ones is when he turns up at Old Peabody's farm and the guy's chasing him with a shotgun and he says, get off my farm, you space bastard. I think I'm going to start using that as an insult. You space bastard, uh, future boy. What I like about that film, what about this film generally, is that product placement is not shy in this film. But there's this little bit at Peabody's farm, it's like, yeah, do you not remember what J.C. Penney's used to be before the corporations came in with their big capitalist ideas and their retail stores? This used to be a farm. Shut up, drink cola. Yeah. Buy clothes. It was, it's like a tiny little thing in the storyline. It's like, do you no, remember? Nothing, nothing but pine trees. Nothing. This used to be nothing but pine trees. <laughs> but that's what this film does so well. And again, that, that economic exposition is that 1950s nostalgia that it that, does that, do it. It gives it the right sort of lip service. That rose tinted optimism. And that's why it ties in so much with what we're doing you know with this podcast is that looking back saying oh you know it, 
it, you know, is is memory playing tricks on you? Is it as good as it you know was when you watched it? Such a good idea, time? George. We'll just go back and review all the films of our youth, and it'll be a really good, successful and, podcast. And people will listen to it for some and reason. It was a really good idea. But there is that, like, and it's something that you know, in terms of time travel films, and this is probably an unlikely suggestion, but something that Midnight in Paris does really well is that you know, it, okay, it's a Woody Allen film. Don't focus on the device. Focus uh, on the story. No, the no, but it's, it's also the fact of that power of nostalgia is is jumping back to a time frame of oh, it was so good back then, but they're like oh no, it was so good back, and you know we're always that's the power of nostalgia. Where no matter what time in your life, you're always going to be looking back, saying, you know, oh, wouldn't it be so great if we could go back to being in school? Well. Would it be that great? No. One of my, uh, I've got a, there's a good friend of mine uh, who who says that's why you got to live in the now because 10 years ago we were saying this and you say, oh, it was so good 10 years ago, it was so good 10 years ago. It's like, you have to accept that things are going to change. 50% of those things that change you're going to like and 50% mm. of those things you're not going to like. So rather than wasting, you are going to waste time on nostalgia in the future, but enjoy what you have now. Enjoy the moments. That's very nice. Very nice thought. It's almost like it's been written by Robert Zemeckis' right-hand like, man. It's, it's almost like if you put your mind look, to it, you, you can, can achieve, achieve anything. anything. Look, this is the best I had, right? This is only my 39th <laughs> time of the script. I'm, look, I'm, I'm looking at your notes and you've just got nothing. So <laughs> so he's back in the 50s. Yeah, and, and there's some there's some great... I love the jokes, the the running joke about his his gilet, his or for an 80s term, body warmer. A gilet. A gilet <laughs> is constantly referred to as, hey, have you just got off shore leave? What's with the life preserver? It, it looks like a life jacket. And and he even goes, at one point, he just goes, oh yeah, I'm, I'm working at the Coast Guard. You know, he yeah. just he just goes into it. Um, but also, yeah, there's that that structure of, again, that taps into the dialogue. There's there's those echoes of of the, the, the past, the future, the fact that, you know, instead of, Biff hassling George for the reports he needs to work. It's his homework, and you don't want instead of you know you don't want me to get fired. You don't want me to drop out of school. There's those echoes of time, and it's really interesting to see the sort of the fact that your again that sort of notion that Bob Gale was playing on that your parents were like more than likely very different people than the people you know them as now in their youth. That the fact that. That thing our you, dear that thing our dear mother always says to us. You know, we were young once. We're like, yeah, whatever. Shut yeah. up, mum. Shut, shut up, mum. Yeah, there, there's some great moments in the when he's you know he's in the diner, he's ordering, he's making some references to Pepsi because the contract demands it. You've got to mention Pepsi at least five minutes when you're on the screen, uh, but you've also got Mayor Goldie Wilson. I love this character, and this I think Barack Obama has a lot to thank. This character. Well, there's the, yeah, there's the line where, like, he's like, yeah, that's right, this guy's going to be mayor. And he's like, mayor. And, uh, mayor Wilson. What's his name? Goldie Wilson. Goldie Wilson. Mayor Wilson. And uh, the, the the guy running the the uh, cafe or the diner goes, mayor. Now, that's a good idea. I could run for mayor. A colored mayor. That'll be the day. You wait and see, Mr. Carruthers. I will be mayor. I'll be the most powerful man in Hill Valley. And I'm going to clean up this town. Good. You can start by sweeping the floor. 
a coloured mare, that'll be the day. Because he doesn't want it because he's old generation. I mean, when I say old generation, I mean he's racist. And But, but it's, it's funny that this film makes a joke of how ludicrous that the, the 50s were. I mean, can you imagine people being called spooks and reefer addicts? No, no, but it's the fact that they make a joke at how ridiculous that an actor could be president. You know, the An fact actor that- could be president, a black guy could be mayor. Yeah, but it's, it's funny that it was we'll, another... we'll get on to Donald Trump when we review the second film. <laughs> There's some great bits there. There's, in terms of fact fans, so when Marty's at, gets knocked out, you know, saving his dad's life, putting himself in the, in the, in the wrong position. He's at Lorraine's mum and dad's. Um, it's the same mum from, from Gremlins. So it's obviously it's the same set. He'll I was going to say, was she not just picked up on set when they were doing the <laughs> skateboard scene? So where, she's like, what are you doing here? She's like, I live here because of Gremlins. And they're like, we're using this set because of studio <laughs> costs. I, I live in this house. <laughs> what, you mean you never left? Didn't you do other films? <laughs> no, I never moved on from Gremlins. <laughs> yeah, I can't work out that whole scene with... Marty's having uh, dinner with Lorraine's parents and they're getting really excited. They've just got their first TV set. And it's like, hey, we can watch TV while we're eating. And Marty's like, yeah, but we've got two TVs at home. Is that sort of like capitalism's good or capitalism's bad? I'm a bit confused. I think it's kind of like you think that eating in front of one TV is good. Imagine when we've got them all over the house. And imagine stuff will be shown again and again. What I think is done really well, as I, I spoke before about the good balance of comedy with tension, and then there's this generic eeriness of time travel, which is touched upon in this film mm. with the whole existential crisis of him disappearing, which we will get to later. But it's also trying to avoid the mistakes that your father has made. And your or the people have been, or, and also, can you avoid, anyway. That's, that's another conversation you've had, but. Oh no, I've gone cross-eyed. <laughs> oh no, I've gone Austin Powers and cross-eyed. But I do love that thing about how Marty's, this, cause it is introduced, is like your jailbird, Joe, you know. Yeah, yeah, your, your uncle Joey's failed probation or misprobation. You know, it's or, that, it's that thing and it's, I do think that is very much second watching material. It is. Well, isn't that's it? It, There's it, a lot. It does that, that say that, does that, that say confidence about Spielberg and Zemeckis? Because we know that this is Zemeckis' film, but mm. he was best friends with Spielberg. There was a lot of influence, and but, these two have made eighties gold together but collectively. It's, but it's it's the I think it, it is down to Bob Zemeckis and Bob Gale the the fact that they um, they've even gone on record saying like in terms of how they came up with the story, it was all about indexing cards and carefully mapping out. It's like okay, wouldn't it be great you could go back in time and you're responsible for creating rock and roll. Okay, to create rock and roll, you need to be good at the guitar. So we need to establish early on that Marty McFly is is in a band and he's good on the guitar. He needs to invent skateboarding. Okay, so we need to have a scene in the 80s where he's skateboarding all around, he's hanging off the back of cars and stuff like that. So it's a very carefully mapped out, and just, just in terms of there's those moments, but then there's, as you say, like... Th- throwaway lines of oh yeah let's make it that that there's that sort of that predestiny but don't worry about that so anyway we've got a chase scene where he (laughs) invents a skateboard um and it is a great scene you've got well you've got the whole 50s nostalgia of 
Marty trying to get George to speak to Lorraine and there's, you know, classic rock and roll on the jukebox. Everyone's drinking milkshakes. Everyone's having a great time. And then it turns into the great chasing. You know, he invents skateboarding. You've got Biff and his hired goons, sorry, his mates, in the car chasing him. Alan Silvestri's, uh, you know, predator, I mean, predator, uh, you know, theme is kicking in, but it's, it's a great set piece. And the trick with a skateboard with a car, I have done that with a picnic table. That's my claim to fame. Can't do it with a moving car where he lets the skateboard go underneath. George is uh, looking at me. Oh, I was going to say. Completely you, perplexed. I was going to say, you, you, you've hung off the back of a, of a picnic table on a skateboard. No. Charlie, the picnic table's not moving. No, as a seven-year-old, I did. <laughs> Or oh, an eight-year-old. I did ask oh, my mum, can oh, I... when he runs over Biff's car. Uh, Great bit of physics work going on there. But I did try to hold on to the back of cars until um, my mum told me it might kill me. And I was only seven. But the one, th- the one trick I did do was I ran up to a pic- picnic table on a skateboard. The skateboard went underneath okay. and I went over the top. Nice. And then I realised h- how dangerous that would be with a, with a 1955 moving, moving Chevy. Top. Yeah. Um, so... Um, there's, we jump into the plan. So hit him in 1955, Doc, have worked out the only way you can get back is through a bolt of lightning. Well, we, we are skipping ahead. So, I mean, we've gone in, we've gone back in time. He's, he's there. He's met the Peabody's. He's bumped into his parents. His mum thinks he's gorgeous. His mum mm. has an infatuation. He with. goes, he goes and meets Doc. We get the second entrance of Doc Emmett Brown, which yeah. is worth mentioning because this is one of my favorite parts of the film. In fact, all of the bits with Marty and Doc in the 50s, I love. I don't know what it is. It's a combination of Marty's wardrobe and Doc. The fact, the fact that Doc hasn't aged today. Doc, Doc <laughs> looks exactly the same age. He's totally fine with the whole thing. That's what I love about this is the, it, I mean, he's I'm so gonna, gung-ho I'm, about I'm, it. I'm, I'm going to geek out a little bit here, but I like to think that he gets it from the instant. He's like, oh. So I did, because he does say at some stage. He no, said, he goes, he goes, I finally invented something that works. <laughs> because that's that, there's that brilliant scene where um, he's like, don't tell me anything. And he sticks the things on his head and he asks him the question. And Marty just kills the experiment halfway through. Because there's loads of scientific experiments throughout all of this. There's the science perspective. He's the crazy scientist. He's the type of guy that maybe your grandfather, when you were that age, could be, or you hoped he would be. He has an interesting relationship with a 15-year-old boy that he has no connection with. And that's the, maybe that's the Spielberg effect. Maybe that's the, the writing. The fact is you don't question the fact that... In a, the 80s, a, nobody questioned a anybody. A 15-year-old boy has a key to a creepy old man's garage. He can do whatever he wants. He can come and go. But I, d- I don't know what it... He can eat as much dog food as he likes. Oh, no, that's for the dog. Okay. No, but these, I don't know what it is about these scenes, but there's the, the scenes that I enjoy the most in this film and obviously when I was younger it was the climax it was the getting him back it was the clock tower scene but no it's the scenes where you've got Marty explaining to Doc I've been sent back in time by you you've made something that works and it's the biggest thing to quote Rick and Morty who have borrowed a little bit from Just Back to the tad. Future R- Rick has this great line in Rick and Morty where he says as soon as you create interdimensional travel you real you realize that you're the last guy to invent it and it's very much like this about like if you want to look very carefully at this for dot brown to create time travel he's probably the last person to invent time travel if he wants to be if you know what i mean 
Shared universe. Sorry, <laughs> I'm just uh, thinking out loud here. But um, what if the Libyans were to invent time travel? George, George, you always bring it back to the Libyans. I'm talking about Gaddafi's dead. I'm we talking have no partner. Get I'm over talking it. About a VW camper van powered by travels back in time for some just reason. Slightly slower. No, these it gets up to thirty-three miles an hour. I'd prefer 22. At least then it's a quarter of the way. No, these scenes between Doc and Mai in the 50s when uh, Marty's trying to explain how he got there. Then there's this other brilliant scene, which is in, we're still in Act 2, when Marty's mum turns up kind of fishing for a date for the dance. And, and Christopher Lloyd does some of the best character acting in the background where he's cleaning up everything and he keeps on just it's giving, his eyes his he eyes. keeps on giving Marty the eyes from the back and he's like going what are you doing I told you about not meddling with your and, future and this has just gone from bad to worse because initially he says <laughs> did you see your parents no, well I'm, I might have I might have stumbled I might have, I might says, have he says him. you've got to stay here stay in my house for the next week and he's like I've kind of met both my parents. He's like, oh my God, what have you done? And it is that, as you say, it's Michael J. Fox is brilliant at the physical comedy, but Christopher Lloyd, and if anything, he's probably more pigeonholed than Michael J. Fox for, for that, you know, for these films. But his physical performance, the eyes bulging out of his head, and obviously, you know, he does, does brilliant work in another uh, Bob Zemeckis film that I've completely forgot to talk about, uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. The Another, eyes of the cartoon. The, 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 the Judge Doom, his eyes are literally popping out of his head. And again, it's a film that pushes the, you know, effects uh, of, you know, physically what's possible in a film. But yeah, he is brilliant in this. He is. And it's those, yeah, that bewildered sort of, oh, my God, what are you doing? And yeah, it links into that scene of um, you have to excuse the crudity of this model. And he's built a... Brilliant, it's not built entirely to scale. <laughs> you know, he gives, yeah, as you said, he gives Cyrus a virus a run for his money when it comes to building a model scale plan. And it's it's even down to the detail. And again, it's it, I've watched this film, as you say, Numerous times. Infeasible. Uh, infeasible times, but only today, when I was watching it, I noticed that on the clock tower replica model, Doc Brown has put his watch on the actual clock tower face. Attention to detail, but what I can't, I can never get over in this scene is when the car goes gets struck by lightning and it falls off the desk and it goes into it's that it's, sound from Lloyd is brilliant yeah that, re <laughs> that reaction to the cargo I mean anyway we are we're going into the minutiae but I mean this this is what this film means he is a great character who's introduced twice and his reaction is a scientific reaction it's like well who's the president I mean, Ronald Reagan. <laughs> what year that is it? That sounds almost... Yeah, <laughs> that sounds like Michael Bean was, should have been in this film at some point. Yeah, all of the bits of them together. Like, everyone talk about, you know, relationships, but the relationship between them, even though you want to look at it as an old man who is in touch with a teenage boy... It was the 80s when that was not sinister. It was in, it was, well, uh, not for me at least. It was, it was a time where that made sense. And there is a certain fondness that goes on. Brings me to a question, and I'm putting George on the spot here, because as you know, trivia and fact fans, George is our man who knows all. But do you not think that at some point in this script, like maybe on the 25th of the 40 revisions, that he was the granddad? And they were like, that's not going to work. Because it wouldn't work in the timeline, because... Do you know what I mean? I, He's I, painted I, as a granddad I, figure. I, I think that opens up 
you know, too many complications. No, but I, I'm pretty damn sure. I mean, I can't officially back this up with anything. But I, but I think that, yeah, that opens up too many sort of like... Well, what was the dad doing in 1955? Yeah, yeah I think that's yeah. why I, I do think, and I'm... I'm well, no, that's, that's what I was interested in, like, I only picked up on this time, when when he meets uh, Lorraine's parents, his basically his granddad and his grandma, there isn't much recognition there's like it's almost like they're new characters like he's not like oh my god grandma you're so young he's just yeah, like, oh, like oh yeah don't yeah. worry about that yeah it's it's almost it is too much you haven't been introduced in the first act therefore well, i'm not gonna i'm i'm not scripted to talk to you they're dead <laughs> they're dead i think that's that's broadening this there is too much that they could have gone into and I, I think that is that sort of ties into that economic storytelling and that's what is great about the fact that it's like, okay, there's a high school scene, there's him trying to matchmake his parents, there's the plan, and let's go into the plan. Let's go to the enchantment under the sea dance. So what, what I'm if, literally saying to you now, let's go there. Let's let's go there. Because let's go we've been talking but, for far too long. But before we do, just one word on Darth Vader, an extraterrestrial from the planet Vulcan. Playing Ed, Edward Van Halen. Can you... I can't think of another line in film history that has encapsulated so much pop culture in one sentence. Well, look forward to in, in cinemas March 30th with the film Ready Player One, which will have lots of pop culture references. After the whole Darth Vader thing, you do have this great interplay between Marty and his dad. And the one thing I want to say about um, George Feeney, sorry, I mean George McFly, is... Does he, does he not have the best laugh in cinema history? <laughs> it's it's so 80s comedy. It's no, no, like, but it's, there's a lot of trading places. There's a lot of, where does that laugh come from? But it's I mean, the, it's a look that Marty gives him, like when he's like offering him the bowl of like mushed up biscuits. And he's just like, you are such a fucking loser. How are you, my dad? <laughs> but that's... But that again... That laugh, though. But that again, whole... that, that plays into the whole... That, that you know, that concept of... Your dad was cool once. You may think he's really embarrassing now. And I'm I'm reaching out to, to, to my daughter now, who's hopefully listening to this years later. Your dad was cool once. Never as cool as Uncle Charlie, though. Never as cool as Uncle Charlie. So, yeah, I mean, this takes us in Act 3. So... The, 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 the fish under the sea dance. The enchantment under the sea dance. Oh, George, for Christ's sakes, get it right. I mean, we're on a time here. All I would like to say is we talked at the beginning about um, how there are students in California studying the script as being one of the most perfect scripts uh, to enter cinema history, or at least the most pop culture... Popular culture. Popular yeah. culture one. But I think this film delivers, like all of the characters do. There's a number of very economic uh, character arcs, but you have so many things happening. Everybody gets what's coming to them. George, George McFly, uh, the mum, just want to get off with my son. She's just been wanting to get but, off with him the whole but thing. But that's the thing. I've... And I don't want to remember him in the future. No, no, no. It's the, the, the fact that it's, it's a brilliant bit by Michael J. Fox when he's going through the plan with, with George and he's like, wait, what are you going to be doing in the car? And he's like, don't worry about that, George. And he's obviously like, I've got to make moves on my mother. I've got I'm to make just going to be, you know, parking for a while. Yeah, and, and he's like, you know, because 
girls don't like guys who are rough and it's just sort of like <laughs> I'm gonna have to be sleazy with my mother okay I'm just gonna be you know you know making her feel comfortable uh, you know and it's just it's just you can he, he plays it brilliantly you know? and then there's the whole role reversal where she's drinking and smoking and she's yeah. and he's like oh my god you're not what I thought yeah. you were and she's like you sound like my mother and but no but I mean everyone gets their light in the sun Biff He's the bully. He's the bad guy. He gets his moment in... And, but it is a proper triumphant moment. I mean, again... George you know, is the hero. Props to Alan Silvestri's uh, soundtrack. But when he punches Biff, it is a real sort of triumphant moment. It's unexpected. Yeah. As yeah. well, because you expect it's Marty who saves the day. And Marty actually doesn't have the chops of his old pops. Can I just say, there's there's one line that took me out this whole family-friendly film. I mean, it's a, it's a family film. There's lots of swearing. There's an incestuous plot. But there was one line that I picked up on today. And when Biff pulls Marty out of the car and he's like, you son of a bitch. Again, more swearing. You owe me 300 bucks for the damage you did to my car. I'm going to take it out your ass. So, I broke back to the future. I'm pretty sure he started undoing his belt when he was saying the line. I may have imagined George, it. you've been watching another one of these extended features DVDs. Maybe the extended version where Nicolas Cage turns up with a, a blueberry donut or something. A sweaty mullet. Yeah. Marvin and the Starlight, so the, the Enchantment Under the Sea dance. I mean, as I said, we've, we've talked about Charlie and I quote this film all the time. You know, there's so many... Great lines, just the simplicity of don't nobody go nowhere. Great line. Um, some more <laughs> racial stereotypes, as you, you've touched on. But yeah, it's, um, and then it launches into, you know, great musical scene. You will never listen to Earth Angel. Earth, Earth Angel. Angel. In the same way ever again. Not, I don't know if you've been listening to it recently, but the same could be said for uh johnny be good uh which well yeah he uh he invents rock and roll you know that classic moment of calling chuck <laughs> your marvin berry i'm not sure about the timeline on that don't worry about that don't worry about, don't that. Worry about that and i am very impressed with the um the voice dub the guy who's dubbing michael j fox uh in oh, the, the singing. singing because it's not michael j fox it's a guy that sounds very like michael j fox and a little bit like Robert Palmer. It's not Robert Palmer. Yeah. You're lying to me. Is it really Robert Palmer? No, it's not Robert Palmer. It's not Robert Palmer. <laughs> I, I, I've done my research, but I haven't done it enough, so I don't know who the guy is. I, let's just <laughs> say he's Robert Palmer. Let's, <laughs> there you go. Robert Palmer did it. So, George flattens Biff. Marty snogs his mum. Creates Drop. rock and roll. Creates rock and roll. The, the looks, as I say, we've talked about the physical comedy. The, the looks from the band when Marty's doing a, uh, an amalgamation of Jimi Hendrix, uh, ACDC, you know, when he's like going nuts, basically. The looks from the band are priceless. They're just like, what the fuck is this guy? They're going on? along with it, but no, they but don't know like, why. It's it's the worried looks and the, the look from uh, Marvin as he takes the guitar. He looks at Marty and then he looks at the what guitar. What have you done to my guitar? I, I don't think this can be played again. <laughs> it's a great scene. But again, there's still... It's almost like the third act is split into Where's two acts. Honestly, there's a tiny act one. And then I think there's act two, three, and then 3.0. Because you've got the whole 
Enchantment and the Sea Dance, and then you've got George Mar Marley needs to go. Where does he need to go, George? Go back to the future. So that's what it means. Back to your present doesn't really ring. ring no, well. no. Apparently, the head of Universal thought that people wouldn't like the title Back to the Future. The title so, that makes no sense. So he was trying to uh, suggest, <laughs> um, you know, you're talking about uh, George McFly and the planet Vulcan. He was like, why don't you call it Spacemen from Pluto? And they were like, that just makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs> the trip back, the, this whole scene where you've got... It's, really, it's so much shorter... It's, the, the only thing I want to say about this end scene, it's so much shorter than you realise. But it's it's you've you've seen the perfect plan, you've seen the scale model. What could possibly go it's wrong? It's amazing how much that does go wrong. You've got the fact that the cable the, the the tree falls on the cable, the cable snaps, the very unreliable in real life DeLorean actually is very unreliable and stalls. And then even when you've got Doc sliding down the line. He's still trying to plug it's caught up in a tree, yeah. and all of this is built up by again the score. It's brilliant. It's like dun 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 dun, dun, dun and it's building up. Just reminds building. me of another film, George. It's dun, 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 dun. <laughs> well, my going to, my my bedroom music. <laughs> You're going to bed predator music. My my, my walking into a meeting music. So we'll 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 put that in later, right? You said we, we could put it George, in later. whenever you start humming, I just insert music. <laughs> so anyway, he's back in the, in the present or the future. I don't know where we are, but he's basically erased everybody he knows or wants new. Well, all I would say about this tension build-up is that when I watched this film for the first time at six years old, the one scene that I related to my friends when they wanted to know what was the When you were reenacting at school. Reenacting at school over milk at 10.30 because that's what six-year-olds did. The climax to me was this point where the car didn't work and Marty's going nuts and it's yes. like he's just ready to go home. And I think what, what, when I look back at why those scenes were so meant so much to me, it was the fact that I'd ha I couldn't take any more tension. You know, it was like, oh, and then Doc's going to fall off. Oh, he can't connect it. I could not take any more. I was like, Marty needs to go. And I, yes, I was six years old, but I was very much on the, you know, I was very much like, let's get him home. And the tension was affecting me. And it is great because I would argue that even when you watch this film now, you still enjoy the tension a little bit. You know, oh, you, yeah, you no. know that he's going to go back, but you still enjoy each little hiccup along the way. Well, that's it. For, for We've seen this film so many times, but it's still so well structured in terms of that. It keeps you guessing, it keeps you guessing, it keeps wrenching up that, that tension. I don't want to sound too sycophantic, but it's brilliantly done. I want to spend a little moment on talking about the little dance that Doc does after Marty's been sent. So, triumphant trumpets. I just think you wouldn't get that in a film today. The way that Marty leaves the scene... In the film today, I think you'd see Marty immediately arrive. But I know 
we're not touching on the sequels, but that's what's so good about the sequels is the fact that that's when he jumps. It jumps into those moments, those key moments. What is the best moment that Marty can arrive back? Well, how about just after he's left? I've just (laughs) yeah, I've just sent you back. No, 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 I've sent you back. I'm back, but that is time travel in a nutshell. That is how. If you you wouldn't worry about oh no, we couldn't possibly go back and see him just after you sent him back. It's like there is no time. Yeah, it's it's playing it's playing with those conventions, and that's what's brilliant about it. And no, what I mean is, sorry, just before we move on, is the fact that there's all of these things that Doc has done. All of these things they set up a scientific experiment that he's actually seen one of his experiments from the future work, and a man come back from the future, and he sent him back, and it's worked. And it's that little moment that's because you know he says earlier on in the film oh my God, one of my inventions worked. When he actually sends Marty back, that's the first time anything's worked. Yeah. But as you but, say, he believes him from the very start. It's like, well, it's that 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 hook of, I've told you only something you've told me in, in, in confidence. And you talk about how um, Marty, at the end of this film, he's living in a future of which he has no recollection of that future's past. And I'm going to get a bit cross-eyed here, but what about the doc that sent Marty back in 1955. But he knows everything. And that's what, that's, that, that's how he develops the time machine. Well, that's it. That's what I was wondering is like, that's the biggest loophole. If, if you knew your biggest constraint was going to be the plutonium, surely wouldn't you find an alternative power source? Like, uh, something that could turn Mr. rubbish. Fusion. That could turn rubbish into a power. It, it would, it would. Um, well, they, they finally, uh, answer that thing. But yeah, that's the thing. We've, We've got to that final scene. There's some nice touches in there that the Twin Pines Mall becomes Lone Pine Mall because yeah. he runs over the tree. Um, we've covered what happens to the Libyans. They're dead. I thought they got turned into a Kodak. <laughs> Kodak machine. <laughs> They've turned into a, a post box. They've turned into a statistic. Yeah, the, uh, the thing that I couldn't get my head around was in this new present... All the family are successful. They're all wearing suits. They're all doing coke at the dinner table. No, um, they're all they're all very successful. <laughs> they're not that successful. They're all very successful, but yet they all live in the same house. And they're working on a Saturday morning. And I think it's a Saturday morning and they're all going to work. The parents are playing tennis. They look great. They've just bought Marnie a little 4x4 truck for yeah. like $40,000. Well, we've got $40,000. Just, you did so well in that test last week, sweetie. Here's a 4x4. Well, that's Ooh. it. I don't get it because like, it's like, oh, he's a brat now. No, no, no. But he's like, the car's wrecked and Dave. Wrecked? Yeah. Dave, <laughs> who's also Jimmy Olsen from Superman is like, what do you mean that the one car's we got wrecked? Oh, it's all right. But Marty's got his own brand new 4x4. Dave, you've got your own job. Shut up, Dave. And what does that teach you? What it teaches you kids is that if you work hard for a corporation, you can all drive cars, really inefficient cars, and spend lots of money on fuel and suits. If, if you go back in time, commit a little bit of incest, you might get that four by four. You may have to make out with your own mother. Apparently, I mean, the the ending of the film does smack of sequel but technically speaking he was the first director to actually um lay the groundwork this is your sorry this is your job shut up charlie why am i telling you this bit so he was actually the first director to lay the track for a sequel which hadn't actually been given the green light am i right george or am i just reading from your notes i think it just it ties in nicely to that whole serial thing of the sort of 
to be continued, you know, the fact that they will continue going on adventures, whether you watch them or not. And they've actually gone back. They, they have it said that at that time they were like, no, it was, it was, a, it was a, a one and go story. If they knew it was going to be successful and there's going to be more adventures, they definitely wouldn't have included Jennifer in the car with Marty and Doc at the end because that's why in Back to the Future sequels, the first thing that happens is, oh, let's knock out Jennifer. She's She got fat. <laughs> we had to change actresses. But yeah, that's why they have to get rid of her because it just complicates things. George, I think that brings us neatly to coulda, woulda, shoulda. So, George, who's um, in this month's coulda, woulda, so shoulda? So, coulda, woulda, shoulda. So, as well as, obviously, Eric Stoltz, apparently Johnny Depp screen-tested for Mike McFly and was unsuccessful. But I'm more interested in the coulda, woulda, shoulda for Doc Brown. Are you ready for this? I... Would just like to. I'm going to try and do something from Monty Python where I'm going to say sensible or silly because I, I'm okay. guessing that some of these are very sensible and some of these are no, very no, silly. No, no, they're, they're all well. They're you, all, okay, two, you, no, two of them are good. One you, of them. You, you go. Th you go through the names. John Lithgow, sensible. Dudley Moore, silly. <laughs> Jeff Goldblum. Um, sublime. Too, too young, I'm thinking, yeah. at that time. I mean, you'd be amazing. Crazy. Yeah. Well, you... Amanda, but Jeff Goldblum is Dr. Emmett Brown. I see that happening. Jeff Goldblum is permanently set to Crazy Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, sorry. Also, as well as Johnny Depp, Ralph Macchio, a.k.a. The, the Karate, Karate Kid, oh. was offered the role of Mike McFly, but turned it down because... Two he, creative differences. He turned it down <laughs> because he thought the movie was about, in his words, a kid, a car, and some plutonium pills. Okay, Ralph, whatever you're smoking. Whereas his, his, his <laughs> Karate Kid trilogy had much more depth. Apparently, in the French translation of the movie, Marty McFly is called Pierre Cardin. Cardin? Cardin? Cardin. Cardin. Dans Retour de la Future. Uh, in 1955. And in the Spanish translation, sorry, this is in place of Calvin Klein. Um, in the Spanish translation, Marty is called Levi Strauss. Levi Strauss. Never heard of it. I can't see it working. No. So, yeah, there you go. So, yeah, I think we've talked about this film for for quite a long time. Well, I mean, it's uh, somewhat film royalty. Uh, we are we are the boys of the 80s and 90s. We were we were children and then young men. And I, I think it's I think it's better if you say it in a Germanic accent. We were the boys. We was we was old boys of the 80s and 90s. Some might say that our delection of 80s films is somewhat incomparable. No stereotypes aside, this film meant a lot to us, and that's why. We spent an hour and a half on the intro. Should we jump into the movie? <laughs> Can I just talk about Back to the Future 2? I think we should get into some serious detail. Now that we've covered the light stuff, <laughs> you're ready for the next two hours. No, we're done. No, we're done. This, we're, I think we weren't sure how to give this sort of film the credit that it deserves. We've watched this at many different ages throughout mm. the ages. I don't know how to play with time more than that, but... Um, Respect where it's due. Robert Zemeckis hasn't made 
as many films as I would have liked him to have done, but I respect him for what he has. Yeah, no, I think it's that's a a, a very a very important point. A bit like James Cameron, um, they have almost been too interested in pushing the format and playing with the technology rather than telling some really good stories. I think they are both filmmakers that have done some amazing films that are great storytellers and they should be doing more. But I would say, you know, I would argue, I'd say that's because they have ideas and real ideas come from progressing things forward. Whereas there are other directors who have ideas which are exactly the same as their <coughs> Michael Bay. I wasn't going to say Michael Bay, but I was thinking Mark Wahlberg. <laughs> and you obviously picked up on Michael Bay. Mark Wahlberg. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, there's not much else to say. Um, should, should we just fade out on some Huey Lewis? I think so, some very on the nose Huey Lewis, who we just like wake up and it was all a dream and listen to back in time. I think what you don't realize, George, is that I'm actually from the future and our first try at this episode was so bad that we've had to come back and redo it again. However, only I will remember both episodes. <laughs> this is your own. <laughs> um, so, no, that has been Back to the Future. I've been Charlie McGee. I've been George McGee. And we will see you next time. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>